Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Gilbert Gottfried, and this is Gilbert Gottfried's Amazing Colossal Podcast with my co-host Frank Santo Padre. Our guest this week is a producer, writer, author, and an acclaimed Emmy-winning director of popular films and television shows. You've seen his work in feature films like He Said, She Said, The Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants, License to Wed, Sesame Street Presents, Follow That Bird, Big Miracle, Dunstan Checks In, The Robert Redford Star, A Walk in the Woods, and He's Just Not Into You, just to name a few. As a director, he's been an important part of some of the most successful and admired TV shows of the last five decades, including several episodes and the pilot of The Larry Sanders Show, as well as episodes of Amazing Stories, Erie, Pennsylvania. Erie, Pennsylvania? Erie, what the <laughs> fuck? See, I, I, I think I'm through for tonight. Yeah, that was an underrated I, show, Erie, this, Pennsylvania. This has been uh, Gilbert Gottfried's Amazing Colossal Podcast. And I did a quarter of uh, the introduction. Well, go back tune to in, that. Tune in next week, and I'll tell the rest of the introduction. Pick it, pick it up from that part. We'll sew it together. <laughs> from Erie, Indiana. Okay. Uh, and and this is with a page in front of me. Joe Dante's <laughs> going to be furious at you. Yes. As well as episodes of Amazing Stories, Erie, Indiana, Freaks and Geeks, The Bernie Mac Show, Happy-ish, Malcolm in the Middle, Parks and Recreation, and of course, The Office. And directing several unforgettable episodes as well as the pilot and the final, uh, finale, the final series finale in a long and fascinating journey that began when his parents gave him a Super 8 camera. At the age of 10, he's gone on to work with Steven Spielberg, Jim Henson, Robin Williams, Robert Redford, Peter Falk, Emma Thompson, Nick Nolte, Steve Carell, and Faye Dunaway, as well as amazing colossal podcast guests, Jason Alexander, Jeffrey Tambor, Amy Ryan, James Karen, Dave Thomas, and Chevy Chase. His terrific new memoir, which doubles as a how-to guide, is called But What I Really Want to Do is Direct. 
and it's filled with memorable showbiz anecdotes as well as tons of useful and practical filmmaking advice. Frank and I are excited to welcome to the show an artist of many skills, a fellow movie fanatic, and a man who seems like a nice guy, which is why neither of us can understand why he lied to Captain Kangaroo. The talented Ken Wapis. <laughs> Thank you for having me, and I, I can't believe that your the headline is lying to the captain. <laughs> but, <laughs> yes, I mean that that's like uh, beating up Mister Rogers. It's, uh... <laughs> well, as long as we're talking about it, Ken, why did you lie to the captain? Well, the captain. It was a, it was a white lie. No, it was a white lie. No, th- th- my first job interview as a director was with Captain Kangaroo. He was the executive producer of something in the early 80s called the CBS Afternoon Playhouse. It was sort of CBS's attempt to cash in on the very popular ABC after-school special, and I was asked to direct one. And Captain Kangaroo was the gatekeeper. He was the one who was going to decide whether I should get the job or not. So I met with him, and it was actually a very curious interview because pretty quickly— I kind of got the sense that Captain Kangaroo didn't know what to ask, didn't know how to interview a director, to be honest. He really, I mean, and I thought later, you know, I guess the director, you know, like the big question on the Captain Kangaroo show, like where do we put the camera to get the best shot of Mr. Moose or something? (laughs) I was like, so he finally just ran out of questions and he said, so Ken, uh, how were your grades in school? And I I was flabbergasted because in fact, I hadn't completed school. I I was a graduate student in film at USC, but I left before completing my degree, and I left a number of classes incomplete. And, of course, at that time, if you let them go incomplete, at a certain point, they'll turn into Fs. And I thought, oh, my God, this is like a setup. He's going to, like, call call the school or ask for my transcript. And I, so I lied. I said, no, I, I got mostly As and did, you know. So I basically lied about my academic record and he was uh he was happy and and gave me the job but i i really had a shuddering moment where i thought after i left the room he's going to turn to his assistant and say call that school and get his transcript sent over (laughs) would have been great he he didn't send over mr green jeans to kick your ass (laughs) it only in dreams that i've had since then Before we turned on the mics, Gilbert was reminiscing about auditioning. Yes, I I auditioned for one of your movies, and and that movie was the acclaimed uh, motion picture Vibes. That's what I thought. That was going to be my guess: is that you came in for <laughs> Vibes, and I because I know we've met, and I just couldn't remember what picture it was. So that was. Uh, I'm sorry we didn't get to work on it together, and I, what, hope, I what, hope we get to. What, what part did you audition for, Gilbert? Any memory? I, oh, I have no the Cindy, idea. The Cindy Lauper part? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and then I break into girls just want to have fun enough to love it. I, I'm trying to think. I mean, I wonder if um, you might have been one of the explorers. Michael uh, Lerner ended up playing that that role. Um, I don't. I'll have to. I'll have to pull out the archives and see. I've got oh, the casting my, sheets hiding somewhere. 
Yeah. I mean, I'm in competition with Michael Lerner uh, for the uh, Jew parts. <laughs> <laughs> he he did famously, and it's said a lot on this show. Ken, he did. Gil- Gilbert famously lost a part to Billy Barty. Uh, that I yes. don't really. Yeah, it's one thing to lose to uh, Michael Lerner, but to lose to Billy Barty, who's basically a a carnival freak. Uh, um, uh, Dare I ask what role you've lost to Billy Barty? Those are bragging rights, by the way. I I, I think so. Okay, it it was one of uh, uh, Mel Brooks' finest films, Life Stinks. I have seen it. Yes, indeed. Yes. I have seen it. And, you would have saved it, Gil. Uh, yes. I, I would have changed it, pulled it around. Uh, but, yeah, I was supposed to be one of the homeless guys. And uh, and at the last minute, they went with Billy Barty. <laughs> now, wait. So, wait. Did you guys have Mel Brooks on the show? We never have had no. Mel Brooks. Because okay, Gilbert won't call him. No. <laughs> <laughs> We've, we've surrounded Mel Brooks. We've had and, the two writers of Blazing Saddles mm-hmm. and, and, and a bunch of other people that work with and, Mel. And I lost to Billy Barty because Vern Troyer was busy. Oh, my gosh. Okay. <laughs> well, 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 Ken has okay. a connection to Vern I, Troyer. I, I will, my connection to Vern Troyer is very important, and that is in the early 1990s, I directed the film Dunstan Checks In, starring an orangutan and Jason Alexander, and the studio, 20th Century Fox, did not believe that a real orangutan could do all the work required by the script. There was a lot, you know, climbing through ductwork up the side of, you know, building. So they demanded that I build an orangutan suit and hire a small actor to get into that suit every day. Well, it turns out the orangutan, the, the actual animal actor the orangutan was great and the guy we hired to get in the suit never never did a day's work on on the show and that turned out to be Vern Troyer I remember at the end of the the show I had to you know wish him good luck and goodbye and I thought oh I hope this guy gets another job soon and like a year later he was mini me so yeah he was a star (laughs) now I I don't want to do a a, you know one better uh, game, but I I was in uh, a very uh, prestigious film, Funky Monkey. Oh, that's hard. And to, hard to and top. That, that had orangutans. Mm-hmm. And and I heard with that, it was like the second time they tried to film it. The first time was with a a drunken French midget oh, in in a monkey suit. <laughs> <laughs> well, all I can say is the orangutan suit that we built at the insistence of the powers that be at 20th Century Fox was a really beautiful, I mean, it was a very well-crafted suit that still looked like an ape suit. You know, it, it, no one was going to be fooled yes. by this suit. And, you know, every day Vern showed up for work you know, very dutifully. And at the end of each day, I'd just come into his room and I'd shrug and say, sorry, Vern, no work, nothing today. Wow. <laughs> And I once I once auditioned for a TV show called Mr. Smith, and that was a uh, talking orangutan. Yeah, Ed Weinberger show. Yes, oh, and and I didn't right. get it. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> that's the same. That was the same orangutan that Joe Mantegna told us he had to escort around the lot. 
See, oh, that Mr. orangutan works more than I do. Mr. Smith. Well, tell, tell us, you know, we love a guest who worked with a primate, Ken. So and we, asked, we asked Jason about this, and he told us about Sammy. You know, what, what, what was the experience for well, you? No, but here's the amazing thing, and Jason probably said this. I mean, orangutans are, you know, probably at the top of the list in terms of intelligence, yeah. you know, among non-human mammals. And um, and, they, and so you could give Sammy a lot. You could give him notes, essentially, and he could, you know, hit a mark, do a particular action, take a beat, then do a second action. He could do a complicated series of things. And there, there came a point during the shooting where I actually occasionally forgot I was directing an orangutan. And, and, and instead of talking to Sammy's trainer, I literally just started giving notes directly to the orangutan. <laughs> I love that. So orangutans are intelligent. <laughs> very, very. And see, well, they, you know they share a lot of our DNA, yeah. What scares me uh, now, because I've worked with them, mm-hmm. but what scares me are the stories I hear about chimps. Well, <laughs> I, I, yeah. I, I, I will say, boy, I, I, I didn't think we were going to talk so much about animals, but I have actually... <laughs> I've, I, I have actually directed a capuchin monkey. Uh, maybe I'm mispronouncing it. C a p u c h i n. I think you got it right. Like capuchin. the one on Friends was a was a yeah. And, and in a in a very memorable episode of Malcolm in the Middle called Monkey Butler, and uh, and the and the capuchin <laughs> monkey uh, it was just that a sort of a a butler for one of the characters who was incapacitated at the time uh, with a broken leg or something. And and that monkey was great, but oh my gosh! And I I trust that both of you have seen this film, but without a doubt, the greatest Capuchin monkey role in the history of movies <laughs> is is Buster Keaton's The Cameraman. Buster Keaton. Oh yes, of course. Because you know he in in that film he accidentally you know running around the streets with his unwieldy camera knocks over an organ grinder and the organ grinder's monkey the organ grinder's monkey seems to be dead and so buster has to cart him off but in fact he's not dead and he becomes buster's accomplice in the film it's it's a remarkable film on many levels but the the monkey's incredible you gave me a segue there ken which is who who approached you at the at an early screening of 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 dunston oh well, this is to, to, to tell you how much he enjoyed it this was such a big 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 moment for me and i was actually you know it was at the premiere of the film and 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 gil i i hope you'll appreciate this the premiere of dunston checks in was held on on a sunday morning at 10 a.m and i thought oh boy this is not exactly this is not exactly get out the klieg lights and it was a little demoralizing and i just uh you know before the screening i was just in a kind of a bad mood but afterwards people were coming up and congratulating me on the film and one of the actors in the picture glenn shaddix wonderful actor who's oh, no yeah, longer with us yeah yeah he, he came up with a an older woman on his arm introduced her as eleanor keaton and in fact it was you know glenn had brought buster keaton's widow to our screening and she shook my hand and said ken buster would have loved this film and all i can say is i Probably could retire. I could have just walked away and retired then. That's it. That's <laughs> better than the Academy Award, right you know, there. No, it it How is. About How about uh, that? How about that? And um, and on top of that, not to get too 
deep into the weeds on this one, but there is a scene in Dunstan that I basically stole from Buster's film Steamboat Bill Jr., and and Eleanor cited it. She said, you know, Ken Buster would have loved, in particular, the scene where Dunstan tries on all the hats. And and that, that is actually a fun scene in, in Dunstan Checks In. But in Keaton's film, Steamboat Bill Jr., it's just kind of a remarkable set piece. And, of course, you know, what Buster can do with a dozen different hats is, you know, is just unbelievable. So I was doubly thrilled that she... Uh, she she made that citation. So what a great compliment! What's funny about Buster Keaton? Well, it, it with a lot of people, it's like there seems to be a weird film snobbery that you have to take sides with either Buster Keaton or Charlie Chaplin. It is like weird. You can't you can't like both. Yeah, and it and and. God forbid you like Harold Lloyd as well. You know, like it's like yeah. I, I do feel I don't know if that snobbery still exists, but I remember when I was coming of age as a movie watcher, it was literally like, you know, Buster Keaton was cinema. But Chaplin, although, you know, like only one of the greatest you know stars ever was merely like filmed theater. You know, like there was a lot yeah. of people who made these <laughs> distinctions. I thought, well, <laughs> they're both pretty outstanding. I know people who think that way, who think that Ke- that that Keaton is cinema, Chaplin's too sentimental. Speaking of working with a monkey, the circus. Oh my God, the circus right, is right. that is. Um, by the way, that scene where Chaplin's on the tightrope and yeah, and and it's not just one monkey. I think there were four or maybe five monkeys crawling all over him, while he's attempting to do a tightrope act, and. One of the monkeys, you have to see this shot again, manages to stick its tail right in Chaplin's mouth. It's really, it is really, it is eerie. I like that one. People don't talk about the circus too much. Somebody said on Facebook the other day, there's a baby in the circus that's still alive. That's 102. That, I I have to find out about that. Can you believe that? Somebody just posted it. The baby won't remember anything, but we have to have it on the show. <laughs> we'll, get we'll, we'll get the baby. I think it's he, fun, Ken. He'd be our youngest guest. <laughs> we had uh, you. Are you a horror fan? You a fan of the old of uh, the old Frankenstein pictures, Ken? I'm not as big a fan as other people, but I certainly, as as a young person, you know, I, I, I've watched a ton of horror films, and I and I I this is not a horror film per se. It's a monster movie, but I would say one of the most traumatic movie-going events of my young childhood was uh, being taken to the drive-in to see King Kong versus Godzilla, a film that is, if I may, I hope I'm not insulting too many King Kong or Godzilla fans. It's pretty laughable, but when I was when <laughs> yes, I when I saw it, I, I hid under the dashboard of my father's car. I was so terrified by this by the spectacle. <laughs> Of, of a man in a Godzilla suit pummeling a guy in an ape suit. So, so. everything was, old is new again. Yeah, <laughs> we were we were discussing another uh, Godzilla one. I I always forget the title, but it's where they uh, build a robot mm. uh, King Kong <laughs> to battle Godzilla. That might be King Kong Escapes. Yeah, I get. Yeah. I and I always thought why. Did the robot have to look like King Kong? They just build a robot. <laughs> because he's because King Kong is one of the stars. Yes. It has to look like him. 
and, and and everything old is new again. There's a King Kong Godzilla movie coming out this it, month. I know. I, I I lived not too far from Warner Brothers, and I drove past the, a billboard for it, and it just gave me the shivers. It like took yeah. me back to my five-year-old self. I thought, oh, I'm not going to see that. <laughs> we will return to Gilbert Gottfried's Amazing Colossal Podcast after this. Tell us about the Skyview Theater. That, that, that was the name of the drive-in? We talk a lot about movie theaters, childhood movie theaters with our guests. And you, you talk in the book about how you view movie theaters as secular houses of worship. I really do. In fact, I, I, I feel like I remember where I saw certain films uh, more, more clearly than I remember like my relative's birthday. So it's like... <clears throat> and the Skyview? Tell us about it. And is sky- it still around? The Skyview is actually having a great moment right now during because of the pandemic. Um, it's been oh, around good. since it's been around since the 40s, and um, I uh, it must have been one of the original drive-ins in the Midwest. And it, I saw many many films there, including uh, I went to see Lawrence of Arabia at the Skyview drive-in, and all I can say is you know the the the, the screen the drive-in screen is not remotely the right aspect ratio to capture David Lean's huge widescreen vistas. So I can think imagine. occasionally you know I just saw like a couple of noses poking in from either side of the frame. <laughs> so. Did they what they have like a uh, what were you saying in the book? They had a, a merry-go-round and pony rides. Oh yeah, I mean, I think there was much more attention to like what the kids were playing on before the movie than the movie itself. And and usually, if I saw a film in the summertime, um, the, you know, the sun was still out, you know, when the movie started, so the, it, the the image never looked particularly great. I hope my Belleville, Illinois, you know, pals are not going to be angry at me. But but sometimes watching a movie in the middle of the summer was not that easy at the Skype. But there was always there was a pony ride. There was a. a, a there was, you know, again, a lot of swings, a little Ferris wheel as well. That's nice. Oh, that nice was to grow back up. when movie going was an event. Gil, did you ever go to drive-ins as a kid? You did, your, your family didn't have a car? Uh, we had a car, but never went to a drive-in. Interesting. Yeah. You know, I remember seeing Tony Rome in a drive-in. Does that mean wow. anything to anybody? <laughs> Sinatra, Sinatra Frank detective Sinatra, movie? Yeah. Maybe with Jill St. John or somebody? I do, I do remember... Sneaking in to uh, drive-ins, like on foot, like there'd be a you know a fence around the perimeter and like hopping a fence in order to stand and watch a movie at the drive-in. I actually remember sneaking into movie theaters a lot because when I was a kid, this is when the rating, this is before the rating system, before PG and you know there was like rated M movies, which which in Belleville, Illinois, they they weren't they weren't letting me into. So I remember sneaking in to see films. I think even Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid may have been rated M at the time. I'm not sure what what what, what for, what was particularly mature about it. But uh, but I definitely remember sneaking in to see Dirty Harry, sneaking into the back door to see Dirty Harry, uh, maybe even Bonnie and Clyde. Wow. And I heard stories that families, uh, I hope it's true, they would hide their kids in the trunk of the car. <laughs> Still going on to this day, I'm sure. Well, drive-ins are experiencing uh, resurgence because of uh, because of the pandemic. The Skyview, the Skyview has a um, a lot of people attending right now, and I think for the, during the pandemic, since there weren't a lot of new movie releases, they were doing like you know 80s night or you know uh, you know showing a, a, a double bill of 
a couple of John Hughes films or maybe a couple of like some I know Gremlins was there one night and I think Follow That Bird I think Sesame Street Follow That Bird Oh good was shown you, at the drive-in You were represented <laughs> so I was represented And I have a few celebrities like Jerry Lewis and people like that who I can use the classic line well he was always nice to me <laughs> Now, uh, that leads me to, you knew uh, Faye Dunaway. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's and, Jerry's birthday, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> we'll mention that. Because she's one of those that does not have a good reputation. She Well, she does not. And when I met her, um, <clears throat> and she played, by the way, the villainess in Dunstan Checks In, but when I met her, she was very upfront about her reputation. And uh, and she said that to me partly to assure me that she was going to be you know focused and diligent and do her work and and not be a prima donna and in fact she was great I actually so I'm not the right person to ask about Faye Dunaway's you know bad behavior on the set because in fact I had a great time working with her she was also really excited to do slapstick to do pratfalls the climax of Dunstan uh, the title character leaps from a chandelier onto Faye Dunaway, who falls backwards into a giant cake, and she just couldn't wait to, to fall into a giant cake. And I she's <laughs> and, she, and she and she said to me, she goes, Ken, I will fall into that cake as many times as you want. And I remember actually thinking, well, I don't want to let her know that we our budget <laughs> won't allow for more than two of these big cakes. So it better work in two times. <laughs> You were you were attracted to that the pie fight the cakes you wanted to do slapstick you wanted to do a you wanted to try your hand at that sort of classic Keaton slapstick well or Stooges uh, slapstick yeah I think what I mean what it was mainly is that there's a lot of physical comedy and sight gags in in the script mm-hmm. and I thought what a great op- and and you don't always actually get a chance uh, to really you know kind of I don't know just kind of focus on sight gags visual comedy and I thought right. I'm just gonna make I'm gonna make a real study of sight gags while I'm working on this film, hence Buster Keaton. Uh, but I also, you know, thinking about Faye falling into that cake, I watched the great pie fight scene from Blake Edwards' oh, The Great Race. One of my favorites. Which, which apparently they used, you know, thousands of pies when they shot that scene. Yeah, it must have. It looks like it was the the movie. The movie is 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 you know a, a not entirely successful, but but they they look like they were having an absolute oh, blast making it. They were having too much fun, actually. <laughs> no, but but I but speaking of Jerry Lewis, though, I mean, when I was prepping Dunstan, I thought a lot about you know kind of wonderful comedies set in hotels, and like at the top of the list is The Bellboy, you know, Jerry's directorial debut. And there's so many, there's so many great wonderful scenes in that, and uh, I don't think we, I don't think I. I don't think I pilfered anything from the bellboy, but I definitely was inspired. I mean, I'm inspired by Jerry Lewis's framing and how he sets the camera, how he works within the frame, how he uses off-screen space. I just think he's pretty brilliant. Interesting. And and speaking of Jerry, you the, you talk in the book about Video Village. Well, yes, Jerry, of course, is the is partly to blame. For what I think is something that's you know grown out of control on most sets, and I and I trust that your listeners know what Video Village is, but if not, I'll I'll explain it simply, and that is that you know the, a video feed from the film or digital camera is sent to 
a conglomeration of chairs where the director, the script supervisor, producers, studio executives all huddle and basically watch the director's work on a monitor. And I, I think that I, mean, I always, when I talk to young directors, I encourage them to not sit at the monitor, to not sit in the video village, to not be surrounded by all these people, but to actually get off your butt and stand next to the camera and be near the actors so that when you call cut and the actors look up, you know, eager for some approval or some notes that the first face they see is the director. But, you know, by and large, a lot of, you know, I, I don't want to say by and large, a lot of directors much prefer to spend, you know, spend the shooting day sitting in a chair watching a, basically a television image. And, and again, not to get too deep, deep into this, but I think what happens is if you're sitting in Video Village, that's where all the decisions get made. And oftentimes the decisions get made by committee because you're surrounded by a lot of people who, you know, feel like they need to have their voice heard. Again, for me, it's old, old school stuff, but stand next to the camera. That's the place to be. And um, what I always ask this of our guest, what's your What's the first sign you're working with a bad director? Oh my gosh. You know, well, here's the funny thing is I I have a hard I don't know how to answer that because I rarely watch other directors. That's the weird thing about being a director. I I I don't I can't say that I've really observed a lot of directors, but I do I would say this is just one of many things that would be a sign. I do think that a director's job is to really create an atmosphere where people feel, you know, acknowledged and respected and safe and free to play. But I think a lot of directors, you know, operate in a different way and they sort of want to keep everyone in a very tense, you know, everyone feeling a little bit panicky and tense. And for me, I, I mean, again, great films have been made by sadists, but but for me personally, I'd much prefer you know creating an atmosphere where people feel like they want to come to work. You know, it's you talk about it in the book that by you standing right next to the camera, it's almost like you're in it with the actor. There's a, there's right. a, there's there's a, there's, a, there's a direct collaboration. I mean, you're you know you're 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 not across the room. You're you're engaged. Well, it's also if you're acting in front of the camera, you you can sense the director's presence there. So it, again, it's just it's a kind of a. It, it's a, it's a little it you know it's hard to kind of quantify it, but just knowing that your director is standing by, I think, sort of just you know kind of helps helps the actor feel at ease and again free to play. And the other thing too is that um, you know you can when you're standing next to the camera, you can see what's going on off camera in a way that you can't if you're like 25 yards huh. away looking at a video monitor. Interesting. So for instance, if I'm setting up a shot. Of you and and we're, we're and there's a person off camera and they might do something really interesting and if, and if I'm there at watching it I can go oh that's a great idea let's make sure we capture that you know during a take as opposed to ha- again having your view sort of uh, restricted by looking only at a monitor. Gil, you've been in plenty of movies. You you have you and you don't have to you don't have to name any names. Have you gotten bad direction or bad notes? Oh oh yeah yeah there's. But, you know, the funny thing is I find with the thing that I'll have a problem with directors, you have a problem with everybody in the world, and that's people who have to justify their own position. 
It's like if you hired me as your decorator, I wouldn't have to see a place. I'd just go, that couch is horrible. Get rid of that table. Uh, the carpeting is ugly. You know. I think I think we find that disease among agents and managers more, yeah, than, oh, uh, yes. more, more, more than we would like to. Yes. And, and, and publicists. Well, I think also what happens on a set is that people – uh, come from the studios or from the networks. They're sort of, you know, assigned to go and kind of babysit the show or the, the film, and they feel like they have to justify being there by offering, God forbid, an opinion. So it's like, <laughs> you know, I, so I think that you know, and again, even as a director, sometimes I think the smartest director knows when to actually shut up and let people do their thing too. And I, I because you don't like focus groups. <laughs> he talks about it. You talk about it in the book. Yeah. I yeah. I don't I don't I can't say that I've met anyone who likes focus groups, but I but I one of the things that I've experienced with focus groups, and this is of course while testing a cut of your film, is that there's always a weird dynamic within the focus group, and there's always some loudmouth who, you know, is a fancies him or herself like a film expert and who can, you know, spout off things that kind of sway the rest of the group. And, and and there are some people in the focus group who are very mild mannered, very shy, and they and they don't, you know, they don't like in, in any group dynamic, they don't feel comfortable kind of, you know, get expressing their opinion. And uh, so I, I find that I mean again, I I hate to be so uh damning of the whole thing, but I feel the focus group process is so it doesn't it creates a lot of misleading information about how a film's playing mm -hmm. well i when i was on that bad season of saturday night live uh nbc or someone decided let's get a group together of just people off the street where you give them all like ten dollars and a can <laughs> of soda <laughs> and and they were they were gonna help make the show good with the questions they asked. and one of the questions i remember were do you think uh, th there are two actresses on this season who look too much alike? <laughs> that that was uh, that was going to help the show. <laughs> oh my gosh, that is oh my god! At least they didn't think you were a Navajo like Woody Allen did when yes. he saw you. When he saw you. <laughs> Jean Dumanian, who produced that season, apparently showed Woody Allen her friend. Yeah, uh -huh. he, uh -huh. it, yeah. she had clips of everybody who auditioned for this show. Oh my gosh. So she brought Woody <laughs> Allen in. And uh, and he sat in the room with her and watched. And the whole time he was stone-faced, look at everything. And then my clip came on, and for the first time he spoke after hours, and he said, is he a Navajo Indian? <laughs> so good. <laughs> I... I don't think I'm ever going to be able to look at you the same way, Gil. <laughs> it's 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 one of the big laughs in the book, Henzo. I'm going to bring it up. The kid, the 11-year-old kid who stood up at, oh my at Vibes. Oh my was, was that a screening? Was that a focus? It couldn't have been a focus group with a child. No, it was. It was. This was a a preview screening of the film Vibes, and afterwards, you know, there are. You know, sure, audience, you know, surveys that are handed out with a lot of questions, and at the end of the survey, 
you can you know, there, there's just a space where you can say any additional comments you want to make right here and 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 a 10-year-old because the surveys said what's your age a 10-year-old wrote totally unreleasable <laughs> <laughs> so funny <laughs> I, I i promise you i still have that that survey hiding somewhere and, hilarious and, I, and i've often wondered what happened to that kid and, and i and and my hunch is you know i'm probably working for him now so you, you, you may be t- t- tell us a little bit about falk who's a favorite of ours and you work with him again on larry sanders i worked with him a couple of times and yeah. i would say on vibes um he I would. I, I'll just be honest. I mean, he was the most formidable actor I worked with in my then young career. I mean, he's like you know on, on every level, and um, I've I found myself scrambling every now and then to figure out how to um, how to direct him. But I did actually become pals with him over the course of the shoot. And at one point, I I asked him if he would talk about his collaboration with John Cassavetes. Oh, I just was you know I'm so excited to hear how they worked together. And Fox said um, that more often than not, the the notes that Cassavetes would give to Falk made no sense. They were totally confusing, and and, and Falk didn't understand. Literally, he didn't understand them. And finally, uh, in frustration while working on one film, I'm not sure which. Falk pulled John Cassavetes aside and said, I don't understand what the fuck you're talking about. <laughs> and, 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 and Cassavetes confided to Falk and said, I know, because if I gave you a note that you could make sense of, you'd turn it into a cliche. So the, wow. there, was a, there was a method to this madness that he, he wanted to keep his, her, his, the actor's performance fresh by kind of keeping them in a weird state of confusion. That's interesting. I, 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 what I wrote in my book is that I have certainly, over the course of my career, given some very confusing notes, but not with such a not with such a great, brilliant agenda as Cassavetes. Which which leads me to what is the worst note you've gotten over the years? And I know you've probably been asked that question, but in, maybe from a network executive. And you don't have to, you know, you don't have to be that specific. If I you have don't to think be. about that. You know what? I'm gonna let me think about, think about that. It. Get let back me, to us me, on that. Let me. I was gonna say, I'm, I'll, I'll use my auxiliary brain to think about that while I answer okay. another question. <laughs> okay. And you, that's a, you that's talk a, about a, a movie that is a favorite of mine, and that's uh, Night Moves. Oh my gosh! Yeah, yeah, Arthur Penn's film with Gene Hackman. I I mention it in my book because of one line of dialogue that Gene Hackman has when he says uh, to another character, he says, I just saw a, a film by Eric Romer. It was like watching paint dry, and uh, which is a line that I've heard many variations of, uh, especially when I was in film school. I, I feel like this was a favorite insult that film students would would use with each other. That you know, if if you showed someone, if you showed a fellow student your you know your your film, your rough cut of your film, they might say, "Oh my gosh, that, that was like watching paint dry," which I thought was a pretty horrible thing to say. And good, there's good another line in that movie where. He's watching a sports event on TV, and his wife walks in, and, and she goes, uh, who's winning? And he says, uh, neither one. One team's just losing uh, faster than the other. <laughs> 
I love that. I wonder, do you remember who wrote that? I should find out who wrote that. Well, I'll look it up. I'll look it up while you guys are talking. But That's to, great. you you reference a lot of films in the book that were you know that were catalysts for you. And American, There's, no no bigger one than American Graffiti. Yeah, uh, American Graffiti really uh, just had a really strong personal effect on me, and I think part of it was I saw it when I was sixteen. I was, you know, living in a small town in southern Illinois. I had no clue what I was going to do with my life. I loved the idea of making movies, but I had no idea how one went about doing that. And so when I watched that film, I mean, especially the the story arc, Richard Dreyfuss's character's story arc, it really moved me because here was a guy who was dead set against leaving town. And over the course of this one pivotal night, he completely does a 180 degree move and decides to leave town. And, and I think I needed to see a story about someone deciding to get out of their small town and and literally I think it's it, it changed it changed the direction of my life and and before anything else this is the kind of stuff that bugs me the line is uh neither one 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 team is just uh, losing slower than the other one. <laughs> yeah, so that that would bug me. The anyway, I remember Melanie Griffith was in that. And yeah, yeah, absolutely. Ed, yeah. Ed, I think Ed Bins was in it. Mm-hmm. Edward Bins. Uh, Alan Sharp is the writer. Oh yeah, I'm absolutely. told. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, another movie that that uh, that you reference, and this is this uh, this is kind of about your directing style too. You mentioned. Uh, Jerry Lewis before you're talking about the king of comedy in the book and how Jerry and uh, uh, De Niro purposely avoided one another that, that that it was an actor making a choice I guess it was I guess it was De Niro's choice I think to it was not De Niro's have anything choice. to do with Jerry during the shoot and you think that actors should spend as much time together as possible right I mean I think that especially due to the fact that you know when you're rehearsing whether it's a film or a television show, you rarely get much rehearsal time. So often you're telling a story about, um, let's say, characters who have had a long-time relationship, who are best friends, who've been friends for life. And, you know, you're, the actors meet each other one day before you start shooting. So how do you create a sense of, how do you create a bond between them? How do you create the illusion that these char- these people have been best friends forever. So you want to you know, figure out ways. It's, it's less important for me to like put scenes on their feet than it is to just figure out opportunities for the actors just to get to know each other, to develop a shorthand. And I mentioned the King of Comedy as the opposite mm-hmm. in the sense that, you know, you know, De-, De Niro plays this, you know, borderline, you know, sociopath. And, um, and as much as he admires uh, the the actor, as much as he admired Jerry Lewis, he felt it was important to keep his distance from Jerry Lewis while making that film. Just the, the better to kind of underscore the, the the tension between the characters. It's interesting that you that you uh, you think actors should be, they benefit actually by by fraternizing more. Yeah, it's funny. I talked to Steve Carell about this. He told me. Um, about working on the film Little Miss Sunshine. Again, a, a wonderful film with Good a very movie. low budget. Yeah, it's a great film. They had they had a, a small budget. They had not a lot of prep time. And the directors, according to Steve, uh, had the cast gather one afternoon for a volleyball game. 
And if I'm not mistaken, one of the actors, well, it's Alan Arkin. Alan, Alan Arkin, Arkin, right. He won an Oscar yeah. for that. And, and Alan Arkin, I think, was very grousy about the whole thing. And like, you know, I'm an Academy Award winner. Why do I have to fucking play volleyball? But, but, so, <laughs> but, but, but Steve said that, uh, and, and the other actors were all like, all right, let's do the volleyball game. But what Steve said is that it really was effective in creating a shorthand within the ensemble so that once they started shooting, especially when the ensemble is like stuck in this, you know, VW van for many, many scenes. Mm-hmm. Again, they had they had they had sort of created a shorthand with each other, and they and they a relationship between them already existed. I think Carell, since you brought him up, is a comic genius. He he's and he's a, he's such a wonderful man to work with too. And I will say, you know, I, I directed the pilot of The Office in about. Oh gosh, a dozen or so more episodes, and and I used to pride myself on getting to the set really early, just like just stand there alone and figure out my shots. And invariably, if I you know whenever I got to the Dunder Mifflin set, even if it was like an hour before call, like Steve was there, mm. he was already there. He was in Michael Scott's office just preparing his work for the day. So I think you know he's he's such. He's a very he's very focused. He's very diligent, and he and he set a great tone for the whole group on that show. I told you, my wife and I love the show. We 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 can't stop watching it, and we watch it over and over again. But but Steve Carell and Rain Wilson stand out particularly as brave actors. Oh, <laughs> well, <laughs> as guys who will completely commit. Oh, you know, and I you told me that you really enjoyed that episode, Booze Cruise. Yeah, I love Booze so, Cruise. So. As I recall, Steve was actually doing double duty. I think he was actually doing, you know, doing scenes from a feature on the weekends. He was like, he was overextended. And yet, when we got to that scene in Booze Cruise where he does that crazy uh, oh, dance. How brave. He I, Not only how brave, but he wouldn't stop. He went, you know, take after take after take. And, and it, it's, I don't, I mean, I was exhausted standing there not moving watching him but he and he just you know he wanted to keep pushing himself and he keeps finding you know new this is just about his work on that show in general but he he's constantly looking for new kind of aspects to that Michael Scott character he's always finding a, a, new, a new you know kind of way to shade that character so uh you know again i hope i hope every director gets to work with him that's nice and a show, tell a show us that was about so well Rip, cast. Tell us about Rip Torn. You know, Rip Torn, it's so funny because Rip Torn is, you know, probably the reason I have much of my gray hair. <laughs> <laughs> but but I do actually, weirdly enough, and I'm sure you've had this experience where somebody who really made your life difficult you end up still having a lot of affection for. Maybe that's not so uncommon. I mean, Rip Rip. Rip was on on you know on the surface, really. I mean, he was that he was a handful, and he would like routinely like march up to me and and right in my face, and and uh, and I hope I'm okay to use an expletive on this podcast. Please oh, do. Just God, of course, <laughs> <laughs> As, I I have a certain amount you have to use. We have a quota. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'm I'm gonna I'll get close on this. No, he would just come right up to me, inches away from my face, and yell. Ken, this whole fucking thing sucks, and I and I wouldn't and I wouldn't have any idea what he was talking about, and and I 
quickly realized that the best way to deal with it was to simply agree. So I say, yes, you're right. It sucks. This really sucks. And finally, I'd throw in, and, uh, and what sucks exactly? <laughs> you, you, you described the whole Sit Larry Sanders experience. And by the way, I was telling you this in an email. I mean, two, two arguably the greatest single camera comedies of, of, of the last... The last 30 years of Larry Sanders and The Office, and you've been an integral part of both of them. But you call it a white-knuckle ride in the book. Well, it was complicated on many levels. I mean, part of it was, you know, Gary's personality is very complicated. But it was also, it was just logistically a crazy show. Nobody knew what it was, and yet it it required real-life celebrities to be the, quote, guest stars on the show within the show. And so we were constantly, well, not we, Gary was constantly scrambling to get people to appear on the show. I mean, once it aired and, and received all this critical attention, then people were kind of falling all over themselves to be guests. But at the beginning, it was, it was you know, it, it was difficult. But I will say that, you know, I, I this is something I actually didn't mention in the book, and I'll just say it briefly, that I hadn't done a lot of television before The Larry Sanders Show, and when I started as a director, I kind of, you know, I'm, and I'm hardly alone. I like look, I look down on TV. I mean, like a lot of, you know, young filmmakers, I felt, you know, if you're a television director, you're like, good luck ever getting a feature off the ground. And if you're a feature director, why would you possibly want to direct television? And I held, I kind of had that bias for a number of years until in the early 90s, I was sent a half-hour comedy script. And I remember literally thinking to myself, should I even open this envelope? I This is the slippery slope. Um, it's a sitcom. After this, no one will take my feature directing seriously. And it was the pilot episode of The Larry Sanders Show. And I remember reading it thinking, oh, well, huh, this is, this is not like any show on the air. And moreover, it's not like any film playing in a theater right now. I mean, it really yeah, felt like... It, it was it unique. Felt, it felt like the guys who wrote it, Gary and Dennis Klein, were sort of kind of reinventing the game a little bit. Now, now there's a story with Gary Shandling. I don't know if you know anything about it, of where Gary Shandling was worried that some manager or something was bugging his phone calls. Oh, that was the whole thing with Brad Gray. Yeah, and that at first it sounds insane. It sounds like Gary Shandling's gone nuts. And then they found out it was true. I, you know what? I'm not surprised to hear that. I, I, I wish I could say uh, I was close with Gary and could verify it. I, I was not really that close with him, and and I think that you know his relationship with Brad definitely deteriorated. But it was after I, after yeah. my tenure on the show. They're so. both gone now. Yeah. What did he yeah. say to you? It's a wonderful line in the book. He said, "I'm not an asshole, but." Oh, yeah. When I, you know, when I met him, <laughs> no, I, it's it's well, when well, I met Gil, Gary Gil and I both knew him a little bit. Well, you know, I met him to get the job to do the pilot and to work on the show, and I remember asking him if he could sort of boil down the the whole show to like a simple sentence, a concept, a, a mission statement, a mantra, something. I, I said, you know, you know, if I'm ever in doubt. Give me, give me the, give me the thing to think about. The one liner that the show is, and he thought about it for a moment, and then he said, he said, this is a show about whether or not I'm going to become an asshole. And there was a pause, and he said, 
I'm not an asshole, but I have the potential. And I remember even in that moment thinking, wait, who, who is he talking about? Is he talking about, <laughs> is he talking about, is he talking about himself? Is he talking about Gary or Larry? And, you know, I figured out pretty quickly that what's compelling about the show is that it, you know, it's all, it's about that weird gray area between Gary and Larry. Gary's house of mirrors. You just, you described yes, that. Yeah. <laughs> yes. yeah. And, and yeah. you talk about uh, nine at nine at the opera. Oh, well, <clears throat> I love that film. I love just about every Marx Brothers film. But uh, the, the stateroom scene from A Night at the Opera played a, a big role in the second episode of the show, The Office. And, and briefly, that, that episode called Diversity Day is mainly set in the Dunder Mifflin Conference Room, which is not a big room. And uh, there was... A suggestion made by one of the producers that maybe we take a scene in that conference room and move it out into the much more spacious bullpen, you know, give the actors some elbow room, give the crew some elbow room. And I, I couldn't put my finger on it, but I just felt certain that having the characters in this confined space was right both for the story and for the comedy. And I kept mm. trying to, I was racking my brain trying to come up with an antecedent. And of course, then it hit me. The stateroom scene in A Night at the Opera, which has, you know, that tiny room with probably, I, I, I tried to count them, I think it's a dozen people crammed into that room, uh, not to mention a, a, a steamer trunk or two. Right, <laughs> right. And um, and again, it just seemed like that that's all I needed to, to remember. I mean, when I, when I thought of that scene, I thought, yeah, we have to stick this whole, this, the whole episode could take place in the conference room. That's right. There is something about good comedy in, t- in in closed spaces. People, the te- the tension created by that by people on top of one another. Well, also with the office, in addition to the the employees who are stuck in this conference room having to, uh, you know, kind of endure this kind of lame brain uh, diversity seminar that Michael Scott puts on. There's also the quote camera operator. The 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 documentary team is stuck in there with them. So it just again added to the, the 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 claustrophobia in a way that there's you know there's a camera like sort of you know right in everyone's face as they're having to kind of deal with this you know diversity seminar. It's interesting that every, you know every you know that every success is you know every successful film or 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 television show is in a way a happy accident that th- that things have to go right and the stars have to align. You didn't have a lot of faith in the office working that there, here's this very very dark British comedy. You didn't have a lot of faith that this thing was going to uh, that an adaptation for American television, such a dark, downbeat show, without a laugh track, without music, what was going to fly? Well, what worried me was that a broadcast network wouldn't let us replicate mm-hmm. the kind of the, the kind of the darker edges of that original show, and uh, I, I mean, I had faith. I had, well, I certainly had enough faith to take on the job. I did have several friends who said to me, you know, you're going to get killed. <laughs> Critics are going right. to kill you. Right. People love, people love that show. What, what are you crazy thinking you can remake it? But I feel like we, you know, the show found its voice. And, and again, all credit to the showrunner and, and creator of the American version, Greg Daniels, that he convinced NBC to kind of, you know, to back off and, 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 
let us do some very unconventional things. You know, again, no laugh track, no yeah, music. No music. Other than, other than that, you know, tiny little, you know, ditty at the beginning of every episode, there's no underscore. There's nothing to cue the audience that something funny is going on. And in fact, a lot of times what's most memorable about the show, or at least at the beginning, are these like weird deadpan stares from the, you know, Dunder Mifflin employees who don't quite know how to react to, this, to their boss's antics. So Of course, again, it, per- perfect it, casting helps too. Casting doesn't hurt. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Now, now, one thing I brought up a couple of times on this show when we have composers and stuff, mm-hmm. and that's clumsy music in uh, in a movie or TV show where when the music comes on, you go, oh, okay, here comes the music. I, you know, it's funny because I am a music lover I, I i and i i listen to all sorts of different music but i would say over the course of my career i've felt like definitely less is more when it comes to underscore and you know i i and i love i love orchestral sounds i mean i love the orchestra but even you know i think the the challenge for a composer sometime is to take a big ensemble an orchestra and make them sound like a single violin i'm hardly the first one to say that but but i think that for you know for movie scoring you know, it's important to know how to take those forces and make them work to, to serve the scene as opposed to, you know, announce itself as, you know, great music. It, it's what I hate is uh, especially comedy, funny scores for comedy scenes where it's like, unless it's done ironically like Larry does it on Curb Your Enthusiasm. Yes. No, he... I think that what happened in the uh, early aughts was that the networks felt more comfortable about single camera comedies uh-huh. with no laugh laugh track. But in lieu of a laugh track, a lot of the networks said, "Well, you better have music to let the audience know it's funny." Oh, you know, it's just it, painful. So that was yeah. so that was actually a ch- that was. I always heard that from executives. Yeah, you you can do your show without a laugh track, but you better. Fill it full of music. Well, well it's you said like the-, the Flintstones had a laugh track, and I, I was always thinking, so are <laughs> I never there thought of that. cartoon, <laughs> is there a cartoon audience <laughs> laughing never, at this? I never gave that any thought, yeah. Gilbert. You're right. That's <laughs> <laughs> disturbing. Uh, you, you talked about, too, in the book how you've, you've been pressured, maybe subtly, but maybe not, to, to include certain songs in a movie so that they can put it on a soundtrack album. Yeah, I'm not sure if this is as much the case now as it was, you know, 10, 15, 20 years ago. But, you know, once upon a time, it seemed like there were certain films that were simply excuses to put together a soundtrack album. And, uh, they, you know, I've had more than one ex- experience trying to finish a film where, a, you know, the studio said, we'd love for you to stick a song deep into the background of a scene simply so that we can include it on an album, even if it made no sense for the scene. So it's always a very frustrating thing. But I'm not sure that, you know, it, I, I don't have the answer to this. I don't know if those kinds of soundtracks are, you know, done anymore. I'm not sure that that's very important anymore. That's interesting. I like the music in A Walk in the Woods, by the way, very much. Oh, some tri- yeah, terrific yeah. work. And, and, and Really work with the film. The uh, Lord Huron uh, is the artist who did the majority of the songs. And 
what I hoped to do with those Lord Huron songs was kind of create that sense you get with The Graduate where you get Simon and Garfunkel doing a number of songs or what's, you can think of a couple other examples like Cat Stevens and Harold and Maude. That's a good example. And, and, and But anyway, so we were able to thread that band's songs throughout A Walk in the Woods and it, it really, really helped the picture. Because it's funny with The Graduate, you, now you can't imagine what the movie would have been without Simon and Garfunkel. Oh, I know. And none of those songs, well, maybe I'm wrong. Was was anything written for that? I guess Mrs. Robinson yeah. was written for well, that movie. Well, Mrs. Robinson, I heard, was something like, uh, they had a song already called, like, Mrs. Washington. Yeah. Hmm. And they said... Mm-hmm. I think oh, it was Mrs. Ch- Mrs. Roosevelt. Oh, oh, yeah. And they yeah. said, all right, we'll change it to Robinson. Well, what, but they and they wrote it for themselves and then yes. changed it for the movie. They already oh, had that I, in I, I their think, pocket. I think so. I think so. Wow. But that's a that's a case where the music is one of the stars of the movies, and the same with Harold and Maude. You, oh yeah, you, they're, they're yeah. such a part of the film. Oh yeah, and I'm not sure. You know, I don't remember well, Leonard exactly. Cohen's music in uh, McCabe and Mrs. Oh, Miller. McCabe and Mrs. Miller, absolutely. Yeah, can't imagine it without it. I think actually. Harold and Maude was my introduction to Cat Stevens. I can't recall whether I heard that any of those songs before that, but yeah, they're they're, they're inseparable from the film. There's not a lot, and there's a few examples of that in more recent times. And there's Jonathan Richman, who's an on-camera troubadour, right, and uh, something there's something about, about Mary. Mary. And then going back, one of my all-time. Uh, favorites is, you know, Nat King Cole and Stubby K doing the musical narration of Cat Baloo. I don't know if you've seen that in a while. Yeah, sure, but but it works. (laughs) Oh, it's great. It seems like Martin Scorsese is very good at picking known songs and putting them into a scene. Yeah, it's funny because he has chosen uh, on occasion incredibly familiar music and, and put it in the back of a scene and then suddenly... For instance, now when I hear, you know, Derek and the Dominoes, Layla, I think of a murder scene in Goodfellas. Yes. Yeah, you can't not think of you know, it. Or if I, you know, if you hear Harry Nielsen's Jump into the Fire, I think of Ray Liotta, you know, coked up Ray Liotta, you know, yep. t- trying to avoid those helicopters yes. at the end of Goodfellas. <laughs> so, Gilbert will find this interesting. Uh, uh, Ken, talk a little bit about Redford, because A Walk in the Woods was something that he had that he had developed years earlier and had planned it as a project for him himself and Paul Newman. Yeah, and if, the weird thing is, you know, Paul Newman and Robert Redford as a duo, they're such an iconic duo, and they made two movies. Two movies. That's it. That's it. Two movies. And A Walk in the Woods was going to be the third collaboration between the two. And uh, Paul Newman worked... I, w- I was not on the picture at the time, but Paul Newman... And Redford developed uh, a draft together, and then Paul Newman grew ill. And uh, at one point, he called Redford and said, you know what? I don't think I'm going to be available to do this picture. And after Newman passed away, Redford uh, put the picture on the shelf. He just couldn't imagine doing it with anyone else. A few years passed, and then Redford directed the uh, spy thriller, political thriller, The Company You Keep, which uh, featured Nick Nolte. And they had never worked together. I'm not sure they, I mean, I'm sure they crossed paths in the past, but they'd never worked together. They got on famously, and Redford decided to pull the script off the shelf. And in fact, Nick, I mean, believe me, Paul Newman would have been phenomenal, but Nick really yeah. is that, I mean, he is that guy. He's he good. Is, he's, he is Bill Bryson's washed out, washed up, washed out old friend Katz. 
It's a it's a good film. I recommend it to our to our listeners, and Thanks. and it's a sweet picture. Uh, Nolte showed up and put you in a headlock. Yes, I... <laughs> well, he did. <laughs> that wasn't our first meeting, but I will say one day we were you know out on the Appalachian Trail, and he got frustrated about something. I'm sure it was I was asking him to do multiple takes climbing up a hill, you know, like delivering pages of dialogue, and I just out of frustration in one moment he grabbed me and put me in a headlock, and it was. <laughs> Uh, uh, it was it was an, it was a fe- it was an affectionate headlock if you can imagine such a thing but it was a headlock and later that day you know I, I remembered I actually you know got a laptop out and I googled his biography to find out that in fact once upon a time he played college football so in fact it, he knows he knows how to give a headlock I promise you you I mean you talk about the book about when he showed up he was so out of shape that you you were concerned you thought is, oh, this, yeah. is this guy going to make it through this shoot? Well, I mean, I mean, he was out of shape, and the character is so out of shape. Yes, and and it, it and works. First, and it, it totally works. And it, there was a point over the course of the picture, though, where he, I mean, there was a like a lot of hiking in that movie, and he started to get more and more in shape. He actually kind of, I mean, again, I think he had a lot to say with this particular role, and and. Needless to say, he's somebody who has had, you know, crazy ups and downs personally in his life. And and again, I think he really loved the idea of, you know, kind of just embodying someone who every this character who people have just written off and 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 finding, you know, a way to redeem this guy. We will return to Gilbert Gottfried's amazing colossal podcast, but first a word from our sponsor. Now, another thing that we've discussed is um, years before the pandemic, movie theaters were dying out. And it seems like the pandemic is just like the final nail in the coffin. Let's hope not. Uh, well, I'm not sure what to say. I mean, I think that my question is not whether people will go back to the movies after the pandemic, my question is whether there will be movies for adults to see in yeah. the movie theater. Yeah, and that's because well, I think what you know what happened is the studios over the course of the past 10, 15 years kind of just bailed on adult audiences. Well, you're talking about in the book, even with Redford and Nolte, who are stars. You know, it's difficult. Is there you know is there a slot for a picture like this? Oh yeah, no, that was a film. I mean. I mean, it's hard to imagine a more all-American subject. You know, these two guys walking the Appalachian Trail. Bill Bryson's memoir is a very popular book. Mm-hmm. And, and and they are two icons of the cinema. How hard could it be to get a picture like that financed? Well, it turned out it, it was very difficult. And it, it the funding for the film came from Korea, of all places. Wow. And, uh, and it, you know, in a slightly different era, that would have been a mainstream Hollywood studio project. And, yeah, oh, and a lot certainly. of times I'll remember movies I've seen or a movie will pop up on TV and I always go, oh, no way in hell would that be in a movie theater nowadays. Well, we just talked about one, Night Moves. Yeah, oh, Night yeah. Moves, yeah, no way. Perfect example. Or American no, I, Graffiti. I or The feel Conversation like, or anything. Yeah, no, I think, how would those movies or, get or made? Or Harold, Harold and Maude. Yeah, uh, Midnight yeah. Cowboy wouldn't be able to. Yeah. 
any of them. Well, they'd be Netflix originals, or they'd be on Amazon, or they'd be you know somebody somebody would find a way through. But it'd be it'd be hard to find a uh, a, a wide release. You know, it's funny. I last year when The Irishman was released, both on Netflix and in a few theaters. I I just made the commitment to see it in a movie theater, and and the night that I went, the movie theater was basically empty, but I I didn't move for the whole three plus hours of that film, and I and I realized my experience of it was so uh, enhanced by like just being alone in a dark room in a big dark room watching it on the screen. Yeah, there's no it's substitute. Like a, it, it, it's, and it's nowadays no substitute. it's like, you know, you're watching something and you know you could. Click it on pause, mm-hmm. and you could go to the bathroom. You could make yourself something to eat, and uh, and it's like so. This whole idea of being in one place where you have to, you have to watch the movie, and you have to pay attention. Also, from a filmmaker's standpoint, you know, you work really hard to pace a film, and if you're if the audience is in control of the film, they are effectively changing the pace of the film. If you pause it to go to the bathroom, you've changed you've changed the pace. You know, people people will stop will pause it, stop, and watch the other half two days later. Right. I mean, talk about right. changing the pace. And I were, I know a couple of times I've heard this from people who said, "Oh, you know that part of the movie that's so scary where you jump up," and they'll go. I watched it in slow motion, and and I could see how phony it was. And I'm thinking, oh God, <laughs> <laughs> I, I I don't know if this is true. I I but can you watch a Netflix film slightly speeded up? I don't. That's a good question. Oh. I don't know. I think I think that might be a feature that's available, but I don't hold me to it. My dad used to talk about seeing Psycho in a theater and how Hitchcock had paced the film deliberately. Uh, you know that it's it's a little slow going until oh. Perkins shows up, Norman shows up with the and the entire theater erupted mm-hmm. in terror. And you can and if you can't have that experience anymore, oh yeah, uh, Hitchcock was really great about sort of the slow pace of some of those films, like Rear Window. Rear Window, nothing seems to happen for the longest another, time. It's another good example, yeah. And, 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 but it's like, what you don't know is the director's really carefully planting the seeds so that when things really explode, you're like, you know, you're, you're all the more riveted. Yeah, a scary movie or a funny movie, two things that you want to experience with other people around you. Oh, absolutely. It's a shared experience. It, you, it's just like watching a movie where the good guy shoots the bad guy and everyone's cheering. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you don't get that experience uh, in your living room. No, and I think that if you're watching a horror film or a thriller and you're in a room in your living room with the lights on and other devices are going, you're, you're, you're not going to be as thrilled. No, no. <laughs> you haven't oh, shared a wonderful was, experience um, with other, with strangers. There yeah. was uh, uh, when uh, Brian De Palma was working with, and now I'm getting a mental block on the composer. Uh, oh, uh, uh, Bernard Herman? Yeah, Bernard Herman. Oh, yeah. I'm, and obsession. Bernard Herman was watching one of the movies they were doing, and he said, you know, nothing's happening here. And uh, Brian De Palma said, well... You, you notice with Hitchcock, nothing happens in the first half, and it all comes together. And Brian Herman said to him, they'll wait for Hitchcock. They won't wait for you. <laughs> well, no, well, sadly, 
he's he's right and, and and it's actually i've been in you know meetings where you try and argue to a studio executive that in fact the audience will will be grateful for the slow pace in the first act it's like forget it you cannot you know you cannot persuade someone that that you know, all, all the studios want to do is sort of get that adrenaline rush within the first couple of minutes. Quick question from a listener, Ken. Mark Schatzberg, here's his question. He said, she said, discuss. Well, <laughs> I will well, ask, I, go ahead, but I was, I was going to ask you, make it a little bit more specific. What is it like directing a film with a person? You weren't married to Marissa yet. No, Marissa yeah. and I were uh, dating. We lived together. Uh, we lived together, excuse me. And this was in 1990 when we made the film. And um, we, we, I mean, the film is very personal. We, Marissa yeah. and I were out to dinner one night in the late 80s. Somebody asked us how we met. And we proceeded to tell these pretty wildly conflicting stories. And uh, later we laughed about it. And I can't remember who started the conversation, but I probably said, why don't we should like come up with a film or something that would you know that you would you would direct the woman's half and I'll do the guy's half and she without even thinking just said oh yeah let's call it he said she said which believe it or not was not a title that had been used before there's there's some variations that people know there's like the Beatles song she said she said right and uh but I I credit uh my now wife Marissa with coming up with a phrase that became very Quickly, very quickly oh, became very so, ubiquitous. So Marissa coined the phrase. We'll I, get, we'll, I, yes. Yeah, we'll give that to her. That's cool. <laughs> and, That's cool. And you have a story about Philip Seymour Hoffman. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I directed – no, excuse me. Let me take that back. I produced but did not direct the pilot of a show that eventually became the series Happy-ish with Steve Coogan. Originally, Philip Seymour Hoffman – was going to play the lead in that series, and unfortunately he passed away before we were able to shoot the series. But he was in the pilot. He was the star of the pilot. And in the pilot, he plays a, a kind of angst-ridden advertising man who at one point is saddled with the task of coming up with a new campaign for the Keebler Cookie Company. And in his you know angst, he, 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 he has a dream, an, an actual nightmare. He's asleep. He has a nightmare about having sex with Ma Keebler, the, you know, the, <laughs> the, the, matri- the, the elderly matriarch of the Keebler elves. And we shot the scene with, it, you know, it's, so it's a combination of live action and animation. And we, we, we replicated the scene a year or so later with Steve Coogan. And um, that was also, pre- uh, going back to focus groups and, and previews, we previewed the version of the show, the version of the pilot with Philip Seymour Hoffman. And I will tell you that when the sex with Ma Keebler scene unfurled, I, all I can say is that it was like that scene in The Producers when the audience is just like stone-faced, stone-faced after the springtime for Hitler number. And um, and and I don't know if, you've, if you guys have been to these kinds of tests, but this one had this weird thing where... There were like these dials built into the chairs where you'd turn a knob oh, to I've the seen right. Them. Yeah, you turn a knob to the right, and that means you're happy. You turn it to the left, and it means you don't like what you're seeing. I mean, it's like so weird and so. Uh, I, 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 any, everything about it's terrible. But while the screening was going on, 
I was able to monitor a graph, like a live graph of like what these dial knobs were showing. And when the uh, sex with Ma Keebler scene started, the all the men in the audience turned their knobs to the right. They loved the scene. the 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 graph the the graph just went way high, and the women uniformly turned it to the left. I mean, and in fact, the the you know the dial knob graph it went below the, the graph itself. So, did it end up in the Coogan version? Oh yeah, yeah, it's okay. definitely. Oh it, yeah, it's definitely in there. It yeah. made it in there. And just, when yeah, they and, use a focus group. A lot of times, rather than having a realistic down uh, ending, the focus groups want to go like, no, we want a happy ending. Oh, that's the, that is such a tricky part of this. And I've had that experience with uh, a couple of films, including the film He's Just Not That Into You, which is a big ensemble piece, and not all the characters have happy endings. So uh, Brad, Bradley Cooper's story ends unhappily. Scarlett Johansson's story ends you know, pretty unhappily. And um, again, arguing to a studio that an audience actually is gratified to, you know, to see stories that don't always end so cheerily is a, is a challenge. It I was a, a silent movie that I'm drawing a blank on. I think he's the guy is a doorman or something. Oh, yeah, the last laugh. Yes, and that's no, but that's the perfect example. That is the perfect example. Do you know that film, Frank? Myrna is a Murnau picture. Yes, it's yeah, a, it's I, a, I, yeah. I, it's, I saw so, it in film school many years he, ago. It's supposed to be like a heartbreaking ending to a heartbreaking story, mm-hmm. and at the last minute, a scene that couldn't work in the worst comedy. Uh, they all of a sudden throw in that he wins the lottery and he becomes rich. And you go, oh, yeah. Huh? So even even in the 20s, this was happening. Yes. Oh, yes. yes. And I don't know if that was intended to be ironic or whether, because the scene that precedes the, you know, the kind of upbeat tag is like, I think you see the character played by Emil Yannings, like in a corner of a washroom, like, you know, like, destitute <laughs> and suddenly there's a title card and the next thing you know he's like driving in a rolls so it's like well sun <laughs> sunrise is another dark tragic film with the, with a with a happy ending that one yeah 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 there's yeah, yeah. A, there's another one oh boy it has to do with that real life uh family that where they all were in the same army troop and were killed well, not say, was saving the Private Sullivan's Ryan? or something. Oh, it was right, a true fight. story. And I think the movie's called The Fighting Sullivan. That sounds yes, right. Yes, I think that's it. And they're, uh, it's supposed to be earlier in the picture, their father's a train conductor. Mm. And as little boys, they know when this train is going by and they salute to him and he salutes back to them. And then. Uh, after uh, they, they're killed, there's an ending where the father's in the train and he looks up with tears in his eyes and gives uh, like a very weak salute. Mm. And then they fucking kill it by having like uh, the boys there as ghosts. 
uh, with big smiles on their faces and giving him a big salute back. Oh and I my thought gosh. this would have been such a heartbreaking ending. Give, if they oh didn't give, give, give me a legitimate tragic ending. Do you like Herbert Ross's Pennies from Heaven, Ken? Oh, I love that me film. Too. In fact, me too. I was just... I, not too long ago, I was just showing uh, someone Chris Walken's great dance number in it. It's like he's unbelievable. Electric. In it. Electric. He and was a, this, he was an amazing dancer. It's a hoofer. Yeah. 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 On the yeah. on the subject, going back to your wife, and and I, I'm telling you this, she made some good films too. Uh, very good films, like Old Enough and and Permanent Record. Permanent Record, and and then decided to, you know, move from one. You know, challenging career to an even more challenging career. She quit being a director to become a, a, fiction, a literary fiction author, and I'm happy to say has made quite a go of it. Good for her. And, and, and we also have to point out your late mother-in-law, who we lost last year, Joan Micklin-Silver. Marissa's mother, Joan, and I, I will say that I, I meet so many young directors and young women directors who don't know Joan's work, and I think I, I'm, I'm just hoping people... You know, rediscover or rediscover her. You know, now that she's no longer with us. But so many great films: Chili Scenes of Winter, Between yeah. the Lines, Hester, Hester Street, Street you know, Crossing Delancey. Well, we love Crossing Delancey on this show. And we, I told you, we had Rieger here. Yeah, and, 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 and Crossing so Delancey is a Rieger's case of a romantic comedy that makes sense. Every other, I, I think uh, Jennifer Aniston in an interview said. It's it's not about the romance; it's about the scheme. And every mm. romantic comedy has like a scheme, like some mm-hmm. wacky scheme. And crossing I, Delancey, just people. I will say that one of Joan's great talents was uh, casting. And discovering people, so like people like Carol Kane. Carol yeah. was on your show. Yeah, Carol Kane. Her first role was Hester Street, and people like John Hurd, and people like Riegert. I mean, I, I don't know how much Peter worked before. He had a role in Chili Scenes of Winter. Yeah, he's in it. Yeah. Yeah. And and uh, But her casting instincts were, like, stunning. And also Finnegan Begin Again, uh, which Finnegan I believe Begin she Again. made it for HBO, which is wonderful. Oh, the other thing, too, we were talking about uh, music in films and the idea of a pop pop singer like Cat Stevens or singer songwriter like Cat Stevens doing the you know the creating like a musical thread for a picture and that's the same in Crossing to Lancy the Roaches the Roach Sisters oh, provide yes. sort of a kind of a musical narration yes. for that film yes good film i mean we you know we had peter here and we gushed about it mm-hmm. uh it's great uh, and uh, then uh, then you, there's this other thing that happens cuz you know uh, directors go to directing school and they have people they admire. So there are movies that will throw in a pop song because uh, they've seen Scorsese do it. It doesn't work with them, but they've seen it, so they'll throw in the song. Tarantino does it very well, too, actually. Tarantino you, you, does you, it very well. You sight stuck I think in the that, middle. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I again, I, I don't think you can hear... Stuck in the middle anymore without no. thinking of uh, <laughs> of someone wielding a razor blade, but also no, a lot of great songs, a lot of less known pop songs from the '60s in uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I, no, he's very, very good at doing that. 
One of the things that stood out to me for the, uh, from the book, uh, uh, Ken, and it's early in the book, is you talking about, and it's sad really, Hollywood's obsession with box office takes. And, and obviously it's a business. It's the old conversation about art versus commerce, and obviously it's a business. But you, you, you talk about how many uh, great talents, some of them over the years, just finally threw in the towel. Because because uh, because all the work and all the art was always judged by weekend grosses, and yeah, pe- people going good people winding up in director's jail. My feeling is that, well, let me put it a different way. I mean, like the big theme in the film is like how to figure out how to define success on your own terms, and you know what I you know I've had a lot of ups and downs. I've had films that do, you know, well, I've had films that do very poorly at the box office. And what I came to realize is that, you know, I don't really have any control over how well a movie does or whether people watch a TV show or whether critics like or dislike my work. So I I can't control that. So the only thing I can really control is the process of making the film or the show. So for me, that that's become kind of my, my watchword is like, keep focused on process and over time, you will, you know, the kind of ups and downs of the business will start to mean less and less because you'll just develop the resilience to, you know, yeah, you get a blistering review, get up, keep going, because actually the review is not something you can control. I think about directors who disappeared. Uh, Martin Brest, uh, uh, after Gili, I mean, and he made, we were talking about Yafakoto before passing away, uh, Midnight Run, Beverly Hills Cop, Going in Style, mm-hmm. which is a terrific movie, and he, and he vanished and 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 you wonder. I you know what I love Martin Brest's films. I I remember I I fell in love with his. Uh, I think it was an NYU feature film he made called Hot Tomorrows. Yes, I think that that yes, was. I've the never film seen that, it, but I know about. Oh, it. it's great, and I I think that was the film he made prior to uh, getting hired to direct Going in Style for Warner Brothers. I would I I'd love to see a Martin Brest film. I'm sorry that he is not working. No. Um, I, I can't speak to why he's not working. He may have, you know, he may for different reasons, des- you know, decided not to do it anymore. But he made it so. I mean, Midnight Run is that's like that's the one of the it, great action great. movies ever. It's just and, it's truly and great. Frank and I were discussing. You had a passage about falling out of love with certain movies. Oh well, I would say. I mean. I've had that experience with a lot of movies because I, I, I have such intense feelings for movies. And the, the, the movie I was referencing in the book uh, is a very important one, 2001 A Space Odyssey. And there was, you know, as a young person, I, I you know, I, I could quote dialogue from that film. I watched it innumerable times. When I was in my 20s, I... I Literally, I, I like turned on the film. I, I decided that it was sort of pretentious and boring and and just overwrought and too many, you know, kind of pristinely composed shots. And I kind of gave up on the film for a while. And I was much more excited about different kinds of directors, the you know, kind of the chaotic, you know, films of Cassavetes or or the kind of improvised, you know, films by Robert Altman. But what happened over the course of you know, a couple more decades, as I came back around and when I revisited 2001, I believe in the year 2001, it was like I fell in love all over again. And it was like, you know, it was like meeting someone you've broken up with and 
and, and realize <laughs> it's like like why did I why did I do that why did I you know will you take me back <laughs> like by the way Paul Brickman is another guy who vanished after Risky Business on a good movie called Men Don't Leave Men Don't Leave is a wonderful film and uh, starring a then little known Arliss Howard yep yep and uh, who plays uh, Louis B. Mayer. Yeah, he's in Mank. In Mank, Just yeah. so we just had Ben Mankiewicz last week. Yeah. But these guys, I, you know, you don't know what happens. I know Malik disappeared for a while because he was doing other things. But you just wonder why these guys, and he came back, fortunately. But these, these, the directors that make these terrific movies, and then maybe they just don't have the fight in them, or they just don't have the, I, you know, they don't I, enjoy I don't, the experience. It's possible that it's, I mean, it, it can be a very difficult experience. I don't know Paul Brickman. I sure love those two films. I actually, yeah. I, Men Don't Leave is a terrific film. Really Jessica terrific. Lang, Jessica Lang, right? Jessica terrific Lang and movie. Howard. And um, yeah, I don't know what became of him. But again, he, for all I know, he's like Terrence Malick. He's just taking a 20-year sabbatical. Maybe. And then we'll come <laughs> we back. hope they come back. <laughs> we hope they come back. Okay, well, I don't know what happened to Gilbert. He's having technical difficulties. I'm going to ask you one more question from the list, and then I'll wrap, I will wrap the show in Gilbert's absence, and we will go find out what happened to Gilbert. We will send out a search party. But before we get out of here, Martin Bow, and we talked about Redford, uh, wants to know simply what was Robert Redford like to work with? What was your experience of the man? You know, here's the thing. Uh, Robert Redford was really gracious to me in the sense that, you know, he he wanted to take off his directing hat, his producing hat. He wanted to focus on his performance. And and Robert Redford is not someone who's known for light or comical performances. And the role of Bill Bryson has definitely got some some comedy in it. So I think he was really eager to be directed. And so he and and, and I loved that. But the one thing I really loved about working with Redford, among the many things, is that every weekend, every Saturday night, Redford and I had dinner together to discuss what we were going to shoot the following week. And uh, I would bring the screenplay, but invariably, we never talked about work, or rather, we never talked about a walk in the woods. What we talked about was his, like, 50 years as an actor, wow. director, and producer, and so every weekend, he, we'd just go to a, a restaurant, and I would just ask all sorts Laptop of questions about, you know, again, his, his creative journey. And, uh, and he, he, he opened up about a ton of things, everything from, like, doing a, a bit role in an episode of Route 66 to trying to persuade Elia Kazan to direct All the President's Men. Wow, yes, I read about that in your book. Wow. So I feel, so I feel like I couldn't have – I feel like, wow, talk about a privileged – See, I just got to sit there and, and listen to listen to him wax nostalgic. A private about this audience <laughs> with one of the icons of of uh, of seventies seventies uh, cinema. Uh, so the book, I'm going to wrap because I don't know when Gilbert's coming back. He may have had a power outage where he is down in uh, down in Florida. So it's just me and Ken and, and Aristotle, our engineer. I'm going to plug the book, Ken. Maybe, maybe maybe at some point Gilbert will come back and we'll we'll, <laughs> we'll call you back and do a new ending. But sure. for but for now, what but what I really want to do is direct. It's a wonderful read, all kinds of goodies. Not only all these anecdotes and anecdotes that that you didn't tell that we didn't get to because we want to save something for people to actually buy and read the book. But it's also a very generous uh, how-to book. Uh, you're giving people and young people the benefit of your life experience. 
in a, in, a, in, a, in a very candid, very open, as I said, very generous way. So I applaud you for that. Thank you. I, I tried to keep it personal. Yeah. So. I hope you had fun with this. I, I, oh, my, I, I had a great time doing this today. My, my, please give our best to, to Marissa and tell her mm-hmm. that uh, we love her work as well. And sometime I'd like to ask what it was like working with Lou Reed. Oh, my. <laughs> that's, that's worth a whole episode. <laughs> so uh, we, will, we will thank uh, Aristotle for this, Arist- our, our wonderful engineer, Aristotle Acevedo. We will thank Ken Quapis. Folks, please get the book. You will love it. We do move a lot of books on this show, by the way, Ken. Oh, great! And uh, and good luck with the Shags movie, which we didn't even oh get, <laughs> which we didn't even get to talk about. Oh, Gilbert's back. <laughs> Gil, welcome back. Yeah, he, my my computer went out. It it can't say anything at all interesting. <laughs> he told stories about you. Oh, <laughs> I'm sorry. Well, you're gonna have to tell them all over again. He he was talking about how he he was treated to a private audience every week at dinner with the great Robert Redford. Oh, but was it was it good stories or? Because <laughs> so far, I'm not that impressed with it. <laughs> I think he's a pretentious asshole, if you ask me. Can you, will we ever get to see the Sarah Silverman pilot, Ken? You know what? I believe you can see the Sarah Silverman pilot somewhere on the internet. I went for a, looking for it, but whoever it was took it down. Really? Yeah. Oh, my Sarah, gosh. Sarah I, put it up. I'll have to ask Sarah. Please ask her to send it to you. It's really cool. And, and uh, among other things, it features... Uh, the lovely Tig Notaro, who I yes. had the pleasure of working with on her Amazon show on Mississippi. Great talent. And also Jeff Goldblum. And Goldblum, yep, yeah, absolutely. Gilbert, this is one more thing for you before we go, and, and we're yeah. gonna sew we're gonna sew all this together somehow. TKD <laughs> TKD Sandberg, a listener, says, I was hoping that Ken would talk about Friday Night Dinner, a remake of a popular British sitcom, which I'm sure Gilbert would love because it's about a Jewish family and their antics. Starring, I believe, I, David Keckner from The Office. Keckner's in there, and Allison Janney's on uh, starred in that pilot. That was this was a pilot that was developed by my office colleague Greg Daniels, and it, basically the the premise is you know a family having Friday night dinner. That was it. Every episode is basically Friday night dinner. Something will go wrong each Friday night, but uh, it, again, a very wonderfully minimalist idea. I think the British series had a couple of seasons. It's a beautiful, it's really a great show. And I'm sorry that NBC didn't pick it up. Well, I want to get my hands on these pilots. Hey, you also I directed The About a Boy. popped into my head now. We were talking about The Last Laugh with Emil Janning, mm-hmm. who was also in the, the um, whatchamacallit, with uh, Marlena Dietrich, The Blue Angel. Blue Angel, mm-hmm. right. So mm-hmm. he, w- he was a fine actor, but now I'm having trouble with him because he was like uh, doing like propaganda films for Hitler. I think you know what I don't know enough about his life in the 30s. I guess he. I, all I do know is that you know before Hitler's rise, he was such a great star, and if I'm not mistaken, I believe he won the first Best Actor Oscar for the movie The Last Command. Which, if you haven't seen, you will love. You will love this film, um, with uh, I think William Powell's in it, 
and it's directed by von Sternberg. Uh, but I don't know. My, I you know I think you're right. I think he he was a you know he was supportive of the Nazis, but I don't know any details. Gilbert, once again, you've brought the room down. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, Gil, if you were setting me up for a joke. (laughs) I I always wait till, like, uh, everything's hopping and (laughs) everyone's laughing. Then I go, um, now, uh, there was, uh, you killed a child in your last movie. (laughs) I was going to say, are you going to ask me about, you know, Jerry Lewis's The Day the Clown Cried next? (laughs) (laughs) Have you you ever seen any of it? (laughs) I've seen little bits and pieces that are online, but. (laughs) <laughs> I don't think anyone's seen it. Yeah, yeah. Well, wish, we'll wish Jerry. It would have been ninety-five today. Mm, so right. we'll wish we'll wish Jerry a happy uh, uh, posthumous birthday. And Gilbert, we're going to get out of here because we've held on to this man for two hours through all these technical <laughs> difficulties. Gil, Gil, Gilbert's computer was hit by a tsunami, ironically. <laughs> <laughs> and. Uh, I don't Once, use that word anymore. I know that. Once again, th- this <laughs> wonderful book is called But What I Really Want to Do is Direct Lessons from a Life Behind the Camera with the great and generous Ken Quapis. And Ken will plug the book like crazy on social media when this is up. Thank you. Thank you. It's been great to hang out with both of you. All right, my friend. Gilbert? And this has been Gilbert Gottfried's amazing colossal podcast with my co-host, Frank Santo Padre, and the guy who got on my nerves, and that's why I disconnected my computer. I flung my computer across the room and smashed it across the because I was tired of listening to him. Ten quadrants. Then, then I succeeded. <laughs> Thank My you. work is complete. Thank you, Ken. Humans were involved, as you like to say. Exactly. Absolutely. <laughs> Read the book, Thank everybody. Bye bye. I saw a friend today, it had been a while. And we forgot each other's names. But it didn't matter, cause deep inside. The feeling still remained the same We talked of knowing one before you've met And how you feel more than you see And other worlds that lie in spaces in between And angels you can see And all the faces that I know have that same familiar glow I think I must have known them somewhere once before all the faces that I know and all the faces we see each and every day when I get home at night you're the face I When my mind's absorbed on my private little screen And I'm walking blind through a sea of unknown men I hear a voice reminding there across the street Walks an old forgotten friend We don't have to say a word It's really better left unsaid
sad Just lights through eyes that recognize All the faces that I know All the faces that I know I'm uh -huh. 